But let me start with a little background about, um, about monsters. Um, they're a very interesting literary device, monsters, and so some of what I say you can apply across, across the field. You can apply some of this to horror movies or uh, Godzilla movies or what, what have you. Uh, monster is a word with Latin uh, roots, and I'm probably going to mispronounce them. Things like monstrum, monstrere, monere, and they mean in the original Latin things like that which teaches, to show, to warn. Um, Think of the word, the English word, demonstrate. If I am teaching and I demonstrate something to the, to the physics class or whatever, I'm teaching them, I'm showing them. But there's also this element of warning, something that, that demonstrates a warning to people. And monsters are ways in fiction to confront real or possible evils of one form or another. And there are various different types of monsters... There are monsters that are scary because it's got sharp teeth and it wants to hurt you and it's after you and it, and it could hurt you and you know, it's stronger than you. It's going to hurt you. You don't want to be hurt, so that's scary. There are monsters that are scary because they kind of symbolise more or less primal fears that we have. Fear, fear of the dark, fear of being alone and friendless, um, fear of starving or whatever. But... There are monsters that represent uh, not so much sort of physical primal evils, but things about ourselves that we fear. Uh, I have what I jokingly call William's law of monstrousness that applies here, which is that the more monstrous the evil, and the more successfully a monster symbolises that evil, then generally speaking the scarier that monster should be. Uh, even if you can see the zip in the costume, as you often can in early episodes of Doctor Who. Um, and I won't do this, but in the Doctor Who conference, because people knew what all of these different monsters from Doctor Who were, I got them to rank them in order of scariness, and then to suggest what the monster represented, and to, to empirically test this idea that the, 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 the more monstrous the thing was being represented by the, by the monster, and the better it represented it, then the, generally the scarier it was. And you could think about any kind of monsters across film, movie, um, history and genres to try to test that theory out itself. So a monster is a human invention, but it warns us about our own capacity for evil because it demonstrates that evil and it demonstrates our need to be saved from ourselves. You know, stories with monsters going after people, we need to be saved from the monsters. Uh, and stories like um, Doctor Who, wherein monsters are defeated, evil is defeated, are called technically in the literature dramas of reassurance. They're dramas in which you set up evil and you defeat the evil. Um, you can find films um, in which evil is set up and the evil is not defeated, and they have very pessimistic, kind of nihilistic outcomes at the end. I think of a horror movie like the sci fi movie Event Horizon you've ever seen that. Um, horrible film, but, but most of it, it's a very gory film, but actually the horror is mainly psychological and, and hugely because actually the evil in that film is not defeated. I won't give any more plot points away if you haven't seen it, but uh, so that's not a drama of reassurance. You do not come out of the cinema at the end of Event Horizon feeling reassured that all is right in the world, you know, but you watch Doctor Who and you will. Um, so I'm going to illustrate that theory of, of monsters 
uh, with Daleks, the biggest monster from Doctor Who. And these are all the uh, actors who've played the character of the Doctor so far through history. Well, to uh, David Tennant uh, today. And we go from Dalek fundamentals to fundamentalist Daleks in this journey. Um, when they first appear, and then this is from the second Dalek story in which they invade the Earth, and you can kind of see this Dalek in Trafalgar Square in London doing a Nazi salute with its plunger arm. <laughs> um, they're very much represented, I mean, this is only say, 63, 64. Um, so World War II is not that distant a cultural memory. Um, the idea that the Nazis wanted to invade London. Um, Nazis, fascists, racists, they always are in the story. They fundamentally represent a hatred of difference, these monsters. They just hate anything that is different from themselves and they want to conquer and destroy it. Uh, and indeed they often uh, just say so. Cat, cat phrases like uh, exterminate, Daleks conquer and destroy. It's very uh, totalitarian. And this kind of disease, if you like, remains constant throughout the series, but the symptoms change with the times. The writers have generally done a good job of um, framing these monsters in a way that makes them scarier to the time that the, the, the programme is being broadcast in. And the stories with the Daleks in that are most successful are generally the ones in which the writers have found some kind of contemporary resonance of something we fear, something evil, that the, that the monsters these diets come to represent in different ways over the years. So, um, take a little trip back with me in the TARDIS. Uh, now, the reason the TARDIS looks like a blue box, a blue police phone box from the 1950s and 60s, uh, the technology of the time laws is meant to mean that when the old TARDIS appears in a culture, it, 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 it has a bit of technology that will hide it, and it will... It, change shape to look like something that fits in with the culture. So the people you're meeting won't notice that you've turned up. You know, you give a bit of a low profile. Uh, only the doctor's TARDIS, because he nicked it, when he uh, scarped from his home world, um, for good reasons, um, has, it's a bit cantankerous, it doesn't always go where he wants it to go, it doesn't always turn up quite on time, and it's uh, become uh, broken and it's fixed in this shape of a uh, phone, police phone box. Um, because that saves a lot of budgetary money, because you don't need a new prop every week. Okay. So it's a good idea on the set designer's part there, but that's why that is. Um, the Cuban Missile Crisis. Certainly my mum remembers. She remembers uh, drills at school here in England to have the kids to hide under the desks when the siren goes. Because, I mean, you know, nuclear explosion goes off. Best bet is to hide under a desk, obviously. Um, but at least they were, you know, doing something about it. Um, 1962, Cuban Missile Crisis, the closest the world internationally perhaps has come to actually having a nuclear uh, firing match. And then Doctor Who starts in 1963, and the second story of Doctor Who introduces the Daleks. And the Doctor here and his companions uh, land on a desolate planet and explore this apparently empty city in the first couple of episodes. And then they come across an endearingly English-labelled uh, uh, Geiger counter. Okay. It's a very cunning piece of design, actually, because it was kind of the first monster on television that wasn't just obviously a man dressed up in cardboard rolls or uh, in, a, in a diving suit with bits of jute put on it and a mask. or you know, they're, they're shorter than a person. 
They don't look like a human being. Um, the fact that they've got an operator sitting down on a tricycle inside them, you know, <laughs> moving the head or whatever. But there's a, particularly at the time, a very cunning bit of design that went down very well in the 60s. So here we have 63 Daleks have been used to represent the dangers of nuclear war a year after the Cuban Missile Crisis. So it's very much tied into the, the cultural mood at the time there. Take a, another little jump through history uh, to the sixties, mid nineteen seventies. Perhaps because of this nuclear threat, a growing disenchantment in a lot of culture with science, from that sort of heyday of cultural optimism about science going to solve all our problems and so on in the nineteen fifties, through a bit of a disenchantment with that. Well, actually, there comes a bit of a downside with all the science and nuclear power and so on and so forth. And uh, in 1975, at the time we got to the fourth actor, Tom Baker, playing the Doctor, he, uh, in one story, goes back into <coughs> on a planet that, that's where the Daleks come from, back, back on their planet, and he's back at the creation of the Daleks, when they're being created by the people who live there, particularly this guy here, a mad scientist called Davros. And these two nations on the planet are having this nuclear war and he reckons the only way for them to survive this nuclear war is to find out what the ultimate mutated form of his race would be and get there quicker and put them inside these battle robot machines um, so that they can be the ultimate victors in the war. It makes very little scientific sense but it makes for a good story uh, Dr. Hick that's often the case. So let's have a look at this conversation between uh, the Doctor who by now um, you might have noticed in that first uh, sort of incarnation of the Doctor, he wasn't particularly heroic or moral. He was lying to people, getting his own way, being a bit cantankerous. That, that very soon changed, uh, and the character of the Doctor became much more of a sort of uh, moral, upright, standing against injustice, doing the right thing kind of character. Um, so here's the Doctor having a little chat um, with Davros. So, by now, we're kind of going to the mad scientist trope. Daleks representing the dangers of science without morality. He's clearly a bit unhinged there. All his protestations about, no, actually, I can justify them as the power of good and all and everything, uh, clearly get swept away out of the carpet at the end, where he reveals his complete megalomania. Um, this is the dangers of science playing God, to know that that power lay in my hands, that the choice was mine, um, as he's saying at the end there. Another little leap forward. Uh, one of the developments in science from the mid-70s onwards with the growth of our knowledge about our, our own biological structure and so on and uh, research into things like chest tube babies and genetic engineering and so on. Um, debates about whether we should um, genetically engineer ourselves in ways that we would get passed on to the next generation or not, what's the germline engineering um, very much um, want to look into this C.S. Lewis's stuff about the abolition of man, um, really very germane uh, to this debate. And we come to in the mid 1980s, uh, and they bring, uh, as the actor having a uh, <laughs> cup of tea, or I think it might actually have been the, uh, the makeup to darken the inside of his mouth on set. Um, some of the Daleks are uh, a little bit liveried by now, but basically the same. And uh, the doctor, this time played Colin Baker, meets uh, this mad scientist Davros again, who's building a new race of Daleks out of humans. He's posing um, on, a, on a planet where people um, have themselves cryogenically frozen in the hopes that 
future developments in science will be able to cure their diseases, their incurable diseases, and rescue them. Um, and it's this kind of um, not a death planet, but a planet where you go and you're, you're dying, so you have yourself frozen and put into cold storage. And Davros is posing as the great healer who is doing research to try and rescue all of these people, a wonderful and noble deed. But of course, what it's actually doing is taking those frozen people and using them as a basic resource to make a new Dalek army out of. And he's changing people into Daleks. Um, classic scary thing with the monster. It's not scary because it's going to kill you, but it's scary because it's going to make you into one of them, like Star Trek's The Borg. Um, so there we go. So a little bit of uh, not allowed. I'll turn the volume down a little bit again. Clip. Uh, British comedian called Alexi Sale is in the middle of this clip. He plays a, a DJ in this necrophilia place. Um, <laughs> that's not quite the right word. Um, necropolis <laughs> place. <laughs> and uh, yeah, it's not that bad. Uh, <laughs> uh, so all of the, the they're, they're, they're sort of suspended in consciousness, but they get a DJ to keep them amused whilst they're all frozen. I'm not quite sure how that works, but yeah, it's uh, a bit of a uh, rural, strange performance. Um, yeah. yeah, you might want to, uh, as traditionally said with Doctor Who, if it's too scary, you know, hide behind the sofa or the person next to you uh, for this scene. A wonderful reminder of the way in which cutting edge uh, digital effects are uh, always out of date in 20 years' time. Yeah. <laughs> so here they're making the diets represent the dangers of uh, sort of genetic engineering, this kind of fear in the background of society at the time, becoming something that you're not being changed. Um, through the power of science um, over humanity uh, itself, as it were. So, it got cancelled in 89, and uh, things were going down and so on, but um, people who'd grown up on the programme um, had now come into power's position within the world of writing and production in television, and they wanted their programme back. And uh, so the BBC uh, brought it back... Uh, Probably about in 2005, and uh, with Christopher Eccleston playing the Doctor and uh, Billy Piper as his companion uh, at the time. So they're going to bring the Daleks back uh, today and try and uh, inculturate them, as it were, frame them so that they uh, they're still recognisably be but they're now representing something that we fear now, 2005. What do you make them represent? The answer should be obvious. This is the scariest thing we can think of in culture at the moment. So, part of the ways, uh, episode from 2005, we've got a mad emperor Dalek who is creating a new Dalek race out of humans. A uh, bit of a recycled plot there from the episode we just watched, but in a very different uh, context that it's put. And uh, New Who, I think, the, the, not only the production values, but the writing. Uh, is much better, and it's got much more of an emphasis on uh, the characters and um, and so on. Um, it's become a much more kind of mature program in its writing, and there's an awful lot in this scene from the, the main writer and producer Russell T. Davis, who's a well-known TV writer here, um, about uh, terrorism and fundamentalism and religion and so on. So I'll play you this scene um, from Daleks Return in 2005. So the Daleks is Al Qaeda. Um, also now in Russell's script where the Emperor Dalek is talking about they've taken the, the refugees the dispossessed, those that society hadn't looked after kind of those who were right for being radicalised 
as it were. The way they've been hiding in secret, secretly infiltrating. Um, there's a whole plot arc during the season, which is gradually this big reveal at the end that the Daleks have been behind everything all along um, that they keep stumbling into. Um, they suddenly get this concept of blasphemy. The Emperor's got this notion that he's the god of all Daleks, and they're now going around not just saying, you know, let's exterminate you, but you've got to worship him, otherwise we will ex- you know, exterminate you. We, we must do this. A very fundamentalist approach to um, evangelism there. Uh, <laughs> from a certain viewpoint. So, we've made the Daleks now represent religious fundamentalists, because that's what's culturally scary in the zeitgeist at the moment. Although there's still at the core is this hatred of difference. Um, so, I've kind of taken core samples at various sort of 10, 20 year jumps through the history of Doctor Who, showing how this monster keeps the same symptoms, but the writers keep updating that against the changing cultural background so that they represent or resonate with something that's, that's evil, that's worried about, that's scary at the time. And I think you can draw a number of lessons about evil from looking at those stories of the Daleks. The first of which is that evil is real. I don't really think, seriously, anyone uh, who's into Doctor Who watches episodes of Doctor Who with the Daleks in as a moral relativist. No one is watching Doctor Who going, well, I happen to like the way that the Doctor behaves standing up to injustice and saving people and helping people and so on. I like that. But the Daleks, they like exterminating everybody who's different from them. You know, different strokes for different folks. All you can say is that they've got different opinions. You can't say that one is right and one is wrong or one is better than the other. Instinctively, you watch the Daleks, you're frightened of them, and that tells you that they're evil. But since they're a monster, monsters are actually a representative monster that's telling us something about ourselves, this may hint to us that evil is not only real, but it's in us. Because these are demonstrative monsters. So evil is real, evil is in us. Evil must be fought against. Remember, Doctor Who is a drama of reassurance, that Doctor is a character who always fights against evil. And evil can be beaten. Again, drama of reassurance. You know when you're watching Doctor Who that the, the Daleks will be back another day so they can have another story, but fundamentally they will be beaten. Their schemes will be routed by the Doctor and his companions. Of course, according to the Bible, evil is real. It's in us. It must be fought against, and it can and will be beaten. So there's a very clear point of agreement in the worldview about evil here between Doctor Who and a biblical worldview. Um, Favourite uh, verse for the uh, whole drama of reassurance in the Bible is at the beginning of Revelation chapter 21. You know, every tear will be wiped away. But who will save us from evil? This thing of being saved from evil, both Doctor Who and the Bible present us with reassuring saviour figures who save humanity from evil, and who inspire humanity to fight against evil. In both stories, as it were, it's not an either-or choice between being saved from evil by a third party, or saving yourself from evil. There's this kind of interesting mix between the two. As biblically, we might think, say things like, faith without works is dead, uh, from James. 
Um, this is Sylvester McCoy, who was the last doctor to play, the uh, last actor to play the doctor in the 80s. He was a uh, former trainee priest. And in one interview, um, he said, it's the classic story, Doctor Who, of someone from outside our world coming down to help us. That makes it very attractive to human beings. I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but Jesus came down from outside the world to save us, and it's that kind of arena. Um, very explicit recognition from one of the actors who played this character that there were big resonances between the character and the Christian worldview. That this is a story that is, in various places, very self-consciously actually presenting a saviour figure. And in the Back in Time book, we've got a list of, I think it's 15 points of analogy between the character of the Doctor um, in Doctor Who and the character of Jesus uh, in the Bible. What does sacrilegious mean? Um, sacrilegious, um, a bit close to sort of blasphemous um, in, in meaning, uh, I guess. Uh, kind of um, not wanting to, by making this analogy, I'm not wanting to make it appear that the story of Jesus is not as important as, as Christians think it is by saying, oh, it's just like a story on telly. You know, he's not devaluing the Christian story by making this, this comparison. That's what he's saying. Yeah. Um, I just want to show you a, a scene again from that 2005 story. Towards the end of that story, the Doctor works out a way to defeat the Daleks, but um, to do it, he'd have to end up killing everybody around him. Um, and he wants to save his companion Rose, and he stuffs her into the TARDIS and automatically programs it to take her back home to modern-day England and her council estate that she comes from, and her mum and her family and things. And so he was Rose stuck back in the present, knowing that the Doctor is fighting this great evil out there and that she's kind of stuck back here uh, and this scene says a lot about the way in which Doctor Who not only presents a figure that goes around saving people but who uh, inspires those people to become kind of saviors themselves as it were, to imitate him and it's been a big theme in the recent Doctor Who, the, the way in which the Doctor's character kind of rubs off on the character of the people that he meets and inspires them to do more than they knew that, that, that they could possibly do before, before they met him. It's sort of transformative, redemptive character on other people's characters as well. So by meeting the Doctor, she's... <laughs> <laughs> what was that? She says she runs away. <laughs> well, uh, she, she runs off back to the TARDIS and figures out a way to get it to take her back uh, to the Doctor. And say, actually, she ends up saving the day at the end of the series. It's not the Doctor who actually saves everyone. It's her. Um, because he, he, he won't kill everyone. His only way of killing the Daleks is to kill all the humans that are there as well on the space station. And he, he says, I, you know, the, the Emperor has this vision, you know, what, what are you, a, a murderer or a coward? And the Doctor says, a coward every time. I just won't, won't go there. I can't do it. But Rose turns up and saves everyone. Um, you have to watch it to find out. Um, yeah, so she's become really kind of a, a, like a disciple um, of Jesus, very, uh, very much a disciple of the Doctor, and his character rubbing off on her, and a lot of moral, you know, make a stand, do something different, don't just run away from fighting with evil and so on, uh, kind of being inspired by that. So there's some kind of links there, and also interesting links about when she's kind of trying to, as it were, sort of evangelise her family about this figure who's captured her, her heart, her worldview. They're initially very resentful about that. I remember Mickey saying, well, you're saying, you know, you're better than us because you think you found a better way of living. Are you saying that we're not good enough and you're better than us? So there's a sort of wall of resentment there. 
and which she has to sort of overcome and say, no, I'm, I'm not saying that I'm better than you because I've been influenced by this character and kind of captivated by him and so on. I'm, trying to, I'm not pointing at me, I'm pointing at him and the effect that he can have on our, my life and on your life. And there's interesting parallels there in you know, sort of evangelism sometimes as, as well. Uh, or illustration that could be used to, to overcome that kind of barrier um, illustrate that, that kind of problem of being perceived by the world to be as Christians saying, you know, we're holier than thou, and so on. Um, so both of these stories contain parallels. There are, there are moral truths, things that inspire us to live a better life, and so on, parallel characters, parallel moral um, truths and claims, and so on. But of course, I wouldn't want to say any of that without making clear that I... Uh, to use uh, the, the sacrilegious term. I'm not being sacrilegious about this. I'm not saying reducing the biblical story to the, oh, it's just a, a, a fiction or whatever. Christianity has this huge added dimension, of course, that unlike the Doctor Who story, Christians actually believe that the Jesus story is true. And it's not a fiction. And it's therefore something that is real and can impact us now. Another parallel with that Rosen and her mum's in the chip shop scene. Her mum was saying, oh, you 200,000 years off, that's a long way in the future. How can something so, that's so distant, temporally, from you, have such an effect and immediacy in the world here and now? How can that be relevant? How can Jesus dying on a cross 2,000 years ago have a relevancy and an impact on the here and now? Well, you know, if something in the future can have an impact on, on the here and now, certainly something in the past can. Um, so th- there's lots of little nuggets or ways of making connections that you can get out of just that, that one scene in the chip shop, actually, about evangelism, about the impact of, of, of a character on your life that you believe is, is true, about taking moral stance and so on and so forth. Um, so those are the kind of parallels that I bring out of the story and build on those, those things that I'm affirming about the Doctor Who story, but at the same time wanting to make it clear But of course, I do actually believe that the Jesus story is true, and there are good reasons for believing it's true and so on, but both of them are building on the same um, moral points to get this idea that there is evil in the world, and actually it is in us, isn't it? And we do need saving, and we do need transforming. Um, And those are things that the Doctor Who script recognises about us that can form bridges for the Gospel.